episode 205 of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. Thrilled you're here today. My name is Eddie Cohn, host, producer, creator of The Spiritual Spiral. And thanks so much to my guest, Kurt Goebel, for joining me on the show. You're in store for a great conversation today. And it's interesting. Apologies for the delay in the in the next podcast. It's been almost like 10 days since I've released one, which I guess in this day and age is a long time. Uh, and something that Kurt and I talk about. Kurt's a composer, a film composer. He's based out of Nashville. He also does music for advertisements, other artists. But something that we talk about and something that I've been thinking about the last week, the rate at which content is produced. And that could be the media, that could be art, TV shows. What does that do to the creative process? What does that do to quality? If the world in which we live in is putting out so much content, a gargantuan amount of content every day, if record producers, record labels are expecting their artists to post content on TikTok, keep posting as much as they can. Now, it's not about you know full albums, but it's about singles every month or every two months. You know, what does that do to quality? I'm I'm not sure. You know, I, I still wonder if if music and art is as good as it used to be. Or does it even matter? Does quality even matter? And what's more important now is being in an audience's awareness. This show is is sort of taken on many forms, but it's it's something that Kurt and I talk about is is sort of this strange intersection of art and social media. The, the slow, intimate process of, process of artistry and how that sort of combats with the fast-paced world of tech. So as a side note, as I sort of lose hope sometimes with uh, the world and the world of artistry, I just listened to this amazing po- uh, podcast with Maya Hawk. She's Uma Thurman and um, Ethan Hawk's daughter. And she's an artist, musician, and she was just on... Actually, I don't know how long ago the podcast was, but um, she was on The Broken Record with Rick Rubin, and he's an amazing music producer. And gosh, just listening to her, I was sort of like, wow, she's just so smart and brilliant and, and, and aware and so creative. And it's sort of like, wow, maybe, maybe this world does produce still incredibly talented, um, prolific interesting artists. Because when I was listening to her talk, I was, I was pretty blown away. Uh, so I s- definitely suggest listening to that chat after you listen to the talk that I had with Kurt. Uh, just a little backstory here. Kurt started studying piano at the age of six. He started professionally gigging at the age of 14. Uh, he chose to major in piano at the University of Illinois. He went on to get his Master's of Music Uh, at the prestigious media writing and production program at the University of Miami in Florida. And then he became a full-time composer for a gaming company, eventually relocating to Nashville, where he has established himself as a full-time composer and producer. Thanks so much, Kurt, for taking the time to speak to me. I thought it was a great talk. Any questions, 
any concerns, you can find me on social media at Eddie Cohn or the Spiritual Spiral Podcast. You know, I have a bunch of new music that's come out over the last four months, which you can find on Bandcamp or Spotify. And I have a couple new remixes coming out in the next six weeks. And I also end this podcast by playing a song produced by Kurt. It's called Be All Right uh, from the artist Anna Graceman. And it's, it's beautiful. It's an incredible song. So great work, Kurt. I end the show with that, that song or that single. I think it's being played in a lot of uh, adverts in a ad- pretty big advertisement campaign right now. So you may recognize it. But thanks, Kurt, for letting me play this one. And um, oh, yeah, information on my book. If you want an advanced copy now, definitely send me a message on Instagram and I'll let you know how you can get a copy. Definitely share the show with your friends. That would be amazing. A huge library of podcasts, so definitely check them out. Maybe subscribe on Spotify or iTunes. Please write a review. That would be a really big help. Thanks again, Kurt, for taking the time to speak to me. And as always, thanks to you for listening, supporting, and being a part of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. Close mic'd and compressed, ready to go. <laughs> All right, man, you look good. I'm good, likewise. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you you talking. Yeah, for sure. What are you What are you working on today? Uh, well, I had a write yesterday. Okay. So I'm sort of. Uh, it went great, and I'm kind of already starting to mix. Wow. So um, yeah, this one happened really, really quickly. I had. Um, you know, my workflow is kind of like, I don't like to leave things to chance. I always like prep, like the day before. Like if you and I, if you and I were gonna write tomorrow, I would spend a couple hours today just like roughing out an idea. Okay. Music, musically, because odds are I know that, you know, I know what, you, what you're like as an artist and I know what we're gonna t- kind of go after. So I know what lane we're gonna be in. So it's a good, you know, like I'm working within set sort of parameters creatively, which is great. I, I prefer that. Interesting. Um, well, it's, it's, I think for me, it would be really like, and maybe it's just my limitations and something that I need to get better at. But if I knew I was going to write with a country artist or a hip hop artist, I don't even know how I could do that because I feel like I'm sort of, I know what I do and I'm doing it pretty well. But I think that's the difference maybe between somebody like you and me is that you are able to transform your creative aura into sort of different lanes? Is, is that is that appropriate to say? Yeah, I mean, I'm basically a chef, right? Right. So chef, they know how to make a lot of dishes, and that's me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just a matter of like, okay, well, what are the ingredients of this lane? I know what they are. I know what the drum sounds are like. I know what the grooves are like. You know, the, the tones and the textures and the messaging so it's sort of like I already start to build the the foundation. And then I usually have, you know, like a concept, maybe lyrically or just a broad theme. Like, hey, I'm hearing, I don't know, I'm hearing the word run, you know? And then so when they when the artist comes in, have we started recording, by the way? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I didn't, I didn't know. Um, so, yeah, when, so when the artist comes in, there's already like this, 
ins, ins, you know, inspiring, hopefully. Sometimes it's pretty basic, but sometimes it's actually pretty flushed out and it sounds good, you know? Like, I've got one guy I work with, um, like, I already know, the mic's set up, ready to go, and he's like, basically just puts on the headphones and he hears the track. Hmm. Like, he hasn't heard it at all. And he's immediately spitting out melodies and, you know, nonsense uh, syllables, which sometimes end up conveying, like, sort of where the lyric goes. Because, oh, it's like a long A and it's a held out note. Okay, well, that could be the word way, you know. So sure. it's, it's, it's interesting how just that, you know, usually our first impression is such a raw and um, usually, like, a good instinct, right? So... Um, anyway, that's just part of my process, but so, yeah. uh, so yeah, I had a write yesterday and I had, I had just like a couple hours the day before and we hadn't, the artist, we hadn't even decided what we were going to do. And he's like, I'm open to anything. And I was like, oh man. So I listened to some of his other things and I thought, you know, I took, I kind of took some inspiration from, from one of his other songs sort of, you know, stylistically yeah and and then um you know just started with a drum beat and machine found a kit and started jamming and had a little pattern and then i picked up the acoustic and you know just there was like a you know in that drum kit and machine there was like this sort of pad sound that i dug so i sampled that and then i kind of got it on the grid and it became this sort of ambient thing. And then, then I picked up the acoustic and then I had some riffs and then I was off to the races. Yeah. And I, I mean, it came out great. I joked that it's like, we made this song yesterday that I'm like, we should call this cinematic blues. <laughs> I mean, Cause it was like, you know, it wasn't like a, like a legit, like stomp clap song, but it was kind of like that, but with some other ambient textures and the acoustic that I played kind of ended up sounding like it was a sample the way I chopped it up and it was cool. Like, yeah. so it was fun. So today I was, I was actually like, dang, I think I'm like already mixing it. It's, you know, it sounded it, great. It feels like I'll, I'll, we'll backtrack eventually, but it feels like you're like, what's, what's the goal right now? Or it feels, cause I know you, you definitely get music into film and television, but are other artists, no, do they know about you in Nashville and, and want to work with you as a producer? Because it, it feels like your weeks can differ depending on the projects or, or who's reaching out to you. Is that fair to say? Yeah, my um, my world is mostly made up of um, probably probably ninety percent of the rights that I'm doing are for film and TV. Okay. Uh, on the sync side, I've kind of been a work for hire composer, writer, producer. So I've done a lot in the ad space uh, for a very long time, and you know have been working in the sync side of things for film and TV uh, for you know quite a few years now as well. So I do a lot of sync work, a lot of you know a lot of sync rights with artists, and then the other thing that I do is just you know straight up work for higher um, composition. Great. It's, um, you know what I was thinking as you're chatting? I was thinking about the word, um, the, you know, the muse. And, and it's, it's weird. Like, I've been hired to, to write some songs for, for a television show, but it's been years. 
Uh, and then I also was working with a sync library company, which I ended up stopped working with over the last year. But I, mm-hmm. I, I primarily work in what I feel inspired when, and that could be, you know, an hour from now, or that could be two years from now. It's just, it's, it's strange how the world of inspiration works. And I, you know, when, uh, when I'm more writing literature or, you know, prose, I, I do believe in the discipline of, of writing every couple days just to get that part of the brain going. But for me as a musician, that part of, of inspiration and creativity hasn't worked as well. So do you, do you notice a change or a difference in creativity when you're, you know, working work for hire as opposed to sort of, you know, just at home feeling the vibes? Is there a difference or, or do you feel pressure that you have to perform and get a product to somebody? Am I making any sense, you know? Yeah, no. Um, I feel like, well, there's always there's always internal pressure to, to deliver and show up. You know, when, yeah. when, when the artist walks in the door and I've told them I've got a track started, you know, I pray to God that they, that they dig the track, you know? And, um, I mean, I always say like, Hey, if you're not feeling this, we can ditch this. You know, I, I'm not, it's not that precious, but you know, thankfully I don't think that's ever happened either. Either they haven't spoken up or I've just done a decent job of, you know, preparing well, but, um, I don't really have the luxury of waiting for the muse to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely not with the work for hire. And especially, you know, when it was this massive project um, in terms of just minutes of music, you know, it's like I was writing, they, you know, they were like three and four minute length pieces, instrumental things. And, you know, you do like two or three and you're like, yeah, okay. I, you know, and then you're like, oh, track four, well, what am I going to do? Like, cause you know, they were, they were a set, like they needed to, function in a certain way for this client. So it was like, how am I going to do a dozen of these, you know, in this, in the sort of the same vibe. Um, so yeah, I didn't really have the luxury of being like, Oh, well, I hope today I have a great idea. You know, I, 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 you know, it's doing your homework and, and listening to, it's just like anything. Like if you were going to, if somebody hired you and they said, well, we want you to paint some stuff and it needs to look like, you know, Monet or whatever, you'd, you'd look at a lot of Monet and mm. you'd kind of mm. figure out his style. Um, what are the palettes, you know, and all of that. So for me, for this project, it was like, okay, I knew, I knew what my sound palette was. So a lot of times that, you know, to hedge my bets, um, you know, for a project like that, where it's sort of, at least if I know I got to do I got to do 12 pieces in this vibe. I, I kind of make a new template with all kinds of sounds that are going to work, you know? So at least everything's at my fingertips. So when I sit down and pull up this pluck patch, you know, in serum, it, you know, I've been playing piano since I was six. So I'm going to come up with something, right. you know, and that, that's going to take me down the road. So you just sort of, a lot of it's just showing up and hoping that, you know, you do the best you can to prepare and some days, you know, some days are better than others. Some days you just, I hit it out of the park and like, Oh man, in two hours, like I've got the whole thing mapped out. It's not finished, but at least structurally I've got my melody. I got my A section. I got my B section. I got my arrangement worked out, you know, and then it's just, you know, it's a matter of like, here's the thing. It's a great question, by the way. I think, 
you only need a small seed of an idea to show mm -hmm. up and then your craft takes it the rest of the way. Yeah. So yeah. my, I remember my professor in grad school said, yeah, um, you know, it's, it's 10% or 15, 15% inspiration and the rest is, is, you know, craft. And I, at the time I was like, that's bull crap. You know, like, no way, it's gotta be more inspiration. And he's totally right. I mean, if you just have, you know, some little melodic idea, Da, 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 you know, and some little answer. I mean, okay, well, that's that's all you need. And then the years of doing it, you're knowing, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna harmonize that, and I'm gonna, you know, this is how I'm gonna theme and variation, you know, whatever. But yeah. Um, so the other thing is, you know, there's preparation and there's experience. So th there's the gem of the idea, but the other piece of it is just. Um, you know, we talked about this the other day, but just, you know, living a balanced life and getting away from it and not burning the midnight oil on it. And so you're refreshed each day. And it's like, you know, it's all the healthy living that, you know, we all should be doing, drinking more water and getting enough sleep and, you know, all that stuff. Because when I show up at, you know, the, in the morning at the studio, whatever time that is, if it's nine o'clock or 10 o'clock, I don't want to be dragging, you know, so. Yeah. Um, there's sort of the paradox of, of technology, I, I believe, and, and the effect that it has on the, the purity of art and creation. And I certainly, and I just had this great guest on where, you know, she's a singer-songwriter, but it does feel like the world we live in expects the creators to also do marketing and, and use the social medias and and where I think that's so dangerous is that I do think it sort of corrupts the purity of, of art. Uh, I think it does move the mind towards what people think as opposed to the mind moving towards just the, the creative process. With that said, though, um, and you could give us some examples, I think technology really in, in, this, in this space right now really does act as such a powerful vessel, I think, in this way where, you know, if you hear something and you move, and, and, and it's weird, like ideas are so fleeting and I often will hear something and by the time I get home, it's gone. But it's, it's sort of like, I do think there is a plus in the sense that if you are relatively a capable engineer with logic or I don't know what you, what you use if it's Ableton, but it's like it does it can help get those ideas out pretty quickly now. So in that hand, or on that hand, I think technology is pretty fucking powerful right now. Yeah, well, there's, I think there's two things that you're speaking about. One is, yeah, yeah, yeah. the technology. I mean, look, my son has an iPad and the music he makes on the iPad is insane. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's this little free app, it's called Medley. And um, I mean, I'm I'm blown away with what he does on that and the volume of output that he, you know, does. And he just sits on the couch, you know, with his iPad. He doesn't have a studio. And, um, you know, even to that point, the, the technology is moving more and more towards, you know, AI mixing. Um, Isotopes plugins are all yeah. very much leaning that way now. And, um, you know, the program that he uses just, does automatic mastering and all the sounds are already compressed. And I mean, there, there is a little bit of EQ, um, 
in that program. But anyway, you know, so anybody with an iPad can can be creative and 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 make music, you know. So I think, you know, again, it like we always say, you know, everybody with an iPhone is a photographer, but not everybody should be a photographer. <laughs> so. Yeah, but it's weird. Like, do you think though that your sons work in medley? And and I've I've read about bands that often. St- like have had to hit records with some of the music that was actually made on GarageBand. It's like, does yeah. any, does anybody even notice or care that that or can people tell that oh this because Spotify you know compresses everything so much can anybody yeah. even really tell I, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, GarageBand. Um, I mean, it has a limited, you know, tool set and capability versus Logic. But if you still if you have, you know, if you have a great front end and you're just you have a nice Apollo, you know, interface or whatever going into GarageBand. Well, the GarageBand is no worse off. It's, you know, it sounds the same as Logic. It's, it's the same program. It's just, you know, scaled back. So, I, no, I don't think anybody cares. And it, only people like us care. Like, <laughs> right. you know, the people that don't know anything about this, they're listening to the song. They're not listening to, oh, is that snare drum crunchy or, you know, what's wrong, you know. They don't care. They're listening to the emotion of it. And and so to that end, the technology is amazing, you know. And I mean, there's never been a better time in terms of the tool set for any to, anybody to be making music, you know. A nice mic, a nice preamp, and a computer is amazing, you know. Um, the social media side of things, you know, I, I think it's, you know, when I was growing up and I was a teenager, I, I only knew a handful of musicians in my town, you know, and like, that was it. That was my network. But so obviously the, you know, the world is at our fingertips in terms of like being exposed to different people's music and, and talent and reaching out to other people. I love that. I don't like the, you know, I don't like how it ends up owning people and, and, you know, feeling like they, I mean, I was just at today at lunch, I overheard, you know, the guys next to the table over saying that, you know, they knew somebody that a teenager that just felt bad if he didn't post something every day. And he was like apologizing online. I'm sorry. I didn't make a post yesterday. You know, like that's a terrible headspace to live in. And also to live in the headspace of, you know, well, I'm getting all my approval from social media. And if I don't get it, then, you know, internally I'm collapsing. Do you feel like, um, music is more homogenized, emotionless now. You know, I don't know if I'm generalizing, but I do wonder if the onslaught of tech, uh, people spending so much time staring at screens, does music sound and feel different to you than it used to? Um, I think there's just, I mean, kind of, yeah. And there's so much of it. I think that's part of it too. Like, I mean, I have certain artists that I like, and then, you know, so Spotify just suggests more like it. So it's like, it just ends up sounding like a sea of the sameness, you know, because because the, the algorithm is like, yeah, well, you like, you know, like there's this electronica artist his name, that uh, Lane 8. Sure, know, yeah. I, I dig it. It's Me like, too. it's not overbearing. It's, it's pleasant. You know, it's well done. It sounds great. Like, I love that. So I end up listening to a lot of his stuff. And then, you know, other things too. And so, you know, my family's like, yeah, you listen, all your stuff sounds the same. You know, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I I like Tycho. I like, you know, Um, so, but yeah, there is, it's funny because uh, 
you know, my son sometimes he's like, dude, you can you turn off the music? I'm just, I'm, I, I don't want to hear any music right now. And and my wife's like, yeah, because it's all like four on the floor beats with like really light, airy female vocals. And I'm like, well, they're not wrong, right? So there's just, there does get a point where it's like, yeah, it does kind of all sound the same. Like if I'm not, if I'm not paying attention, is this Lane Eight or is this like a thousand other artists that sound like him? You know, so I don't know if that's because there's a dumbing down of music or if there's just so many more people doing it and we're all influenced by, you know, what's getting curated to us. So it sort of spawns more of that that are people wanting to get into it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because yeah. most people are like, oh, well, I want to make, I want to make music like Tycho. So I'm going to, I'm going to use his ingredients to bring it back the the chef analogy, you know? Um, and now there's a lot of Tycho knockoffs, you know? So, um, yeah, I I think there's probably sort of this homogenous thing, and especially, you know, kind of like pop music for sure, because, you know, the labels are looking to continue success. So to some degree, they're not looking for something that's truly unique because they know they can't sell it. So they're like, well, we need it to sound like, you know, mostly like whatever artist you know, Billie Eilish, we need it to sound like Billie Eilish, but not like her, but like enough like her that it sounds familiar. Cause that's the key, you know, for them, it has to sound familiar on the first listen. Something I remember, like, you know, Avril Lavigne just put out a record and I remember you know, I'm not much of a pop music guy, but I certainly like Pink, and I think Kelly Clarkson is great. And I remember Avril, Avril Lavigne's first record, and I thought there was some pretty yeah. cool stuff on that. And this one just sounds like so loud, and it's really compressed, and it's it just feels like she's screaming. And there's just, you know, I just I can't say it other than this is the only way I can think about it. it just it feels like there's a, a lack of of nuance and sensitivity and, and emotionality and heart, uh, quote unquote heart in, in a lot of the music that, that I hear now. And, and, and even, you know, some of my favorite bands like Tame Impala and, and Radiohead, it just, it, I, I even sense a shift in the music that I hear from, from them. They're just, it feels like there's a specific formula and yeah. it just, it's interesting. And, and I'm not, it just, I, I notice that that's what I hear going on. I hear it too. I mean, you know, there's, there are like, I guess you'd consider him a legacy artist, but you know, a guy like Brian Adams from the eighties, <laughs> um, you know, he's still working and putting out new stuff occasionally. And I listened to one of his, you know, newer things not too long ago. And I was like the same thing. I felt the same thing. Like doesn't sound as good. It sounds like he's on a cheap mic and he's really close to it and like the fidelity and just, I, you know, it didn't, it didn't feel like what I thought it should feel like, you know, coming from a, an artist of that level. And, you know, I think they just, you know, I mean, you read about it, they took so much more time back then. They'd spend a year in the studio making their records, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, uh, now you know, the process just happens so much more quickly now, I think. But I don't I don't know. I mean, even like the some of the recent 
well, Shania Twain put out a record, you know, I don't know, a few years ago or whatever, and it had been a, you know, it had been a really long time since she had released anything. And it was the same thing. I was like, wow, this, she's Shania Twain. Like, she could work with anybody, any engineer, any producer, and it sounded like, like you said, too loud, overcompressed, you know, just kind of like not, it, I mean, it was pro, it was pro, but not like what you would, you know, not like her other stuff. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there, it's not like there aren't good tools out there still. So I'm yeah. not sure, I but think, I, I hear it. Yeah. You know, I was just like James Blake to me and Anderson Pac, I think those, those records and to my ears sound like, yeah. I they, like they weren't recorded in a home studio. They, there's a, there's a lot of depth to the drums and um, yeah. Yeah. So, it, but I think, Last point here before we backtrack. I just, I think, um, I wonder, it's weird. I, I felt like artists sort of controlled society in this weird, weird, like they had a certain power, like Led Zeppelin or U2, they they were going to put out a fucking record when, when like they were ready. And, and we eagerly waited. And it feels like, either their manager or their thinking we can't do that anymore because of society and because of tech and because of attention spans. So if people are making art, not because of inspiration or because of, you know, internal desire or because of just, it's this innate thing that they have to do. If, if, if they are creation creating because the voices are saying, no, you, like you have to do it this way. I, I think that might sort of be a reason why uh, there's a shift that's going on in, in, in quality. I agree, 100%. I mean, it doesn't make any sense from a marketing standpoint and a numbers standpoint to be putting out an album every year or every two years, um, especially for new artists that are trying to to increase their listeners on Spotify. I mean, you know, any manager will tell you, you should be putting out a song every month because <laughs> the more often that you put something out, the more your numbers will increase versus you versus people waiting 12 months and getting something. Because if they're not already a fan, then you're only getting one exposure. That's the thing. It's like you get one little blip, you drop all 10 songs on your record, right? Versus drip this month drip next month so they're getting 12 looks from you versus one look with all the music so you know you can say it's better or worse but that's just i mean you know at my last job and we were working with artists and you know everyone was that's that is the mindset i mean even one republic was like he you know ryan tedder was like i'm done doing records he's like i'm just gonna do singles from here on out like a couple years ago yeah and um you know just from the Again, I mean, he doesn't, you know, he's got great numbers. He's not like trying to build build numbers. But I mean, but even for a band like that, you know, it makes sense for them to be on my radar because I'm a big fan of theirs. So I get all the notices on Spotify. Hey, you know, they just dropped a new track, you know. So they're staying in my consciousness way more often than if they just disappeared for a year and then they gave me a record. Yeah. And I think I just think about it a lot. And, and when I used to listen to records, you know, just how immersive in 3D the experience was. I mean, OK Computer, I remember not even liking 
I, the only songs I liked on that album were Let Down and Karma Police for the first couple months. And then I saw the Paranoid Android video come out maybe three or four months later. And it, that sort of got my brain to listen to that song in a new way. And, and then I went to Subterranean Homesick Alien. And then tr- it's, it, it was like this year-long immersive experience of... And same thing with like Sea Change and Wildflowers. Those were just a part of my life for a long period of time. And I, I'm not saying that that was a better way of experiencing music than it is now, but I think that's why music and particular artists and particular albums still resonate in my, uh, my body when I still hear them because they were such a big part of my life. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, I feel the same way, you know, <laughs> stuff, obviously stuff when I was a teenager, you know, and obviously there wasn't any streaming services back then. So, you know, my friends and I, we've talked about this, you know, back then there was only, I mean, all you had was the radio in the top 40. So it's no wonder that Prince was a megastar and Madonna was a megastar because there wasn't a thousand other bands and artists that we were getting, you know, like overloaded with that we are now. So of course, you know, it was, they were a much bigger part of our consciousness. So I, re- I resonate with that. And that's the, that's not, that's kind of the sad part of it. I think now is there's just, <laughs> there's just too much music yeah. for that to happen. Yeah. You know, I think. Um, I, I said this, the people are going to hear these two podcasts back to back. I said this to my last guest cause she was a singer songwriter, but she started playing piano very young. So I just, I want you to go into a time machine because mm-hmm. I'm very curious about how music at a very young age, I know you started playing when you were six, but uh, when you were six, but, you know, talk to me if you can remember what drew you to music and, and where did the curiosity come from? Um, so it's just very basic at those early moments, if you remember. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, we had a piano in the house. I think our neighbors had, you know, loaned us their, it was like in a really old upright grand that I'm sure was in terrible shape, but uh, I, my sister is four years older than me and she actually started taking lessons. So she was probably eight because my parents tell me that when I was four, I was asking to take lessons. Hmm. Like I was ready to go. <laughs> Cause I was already kind of like just tinkering around and playing by ear a little bit. And the te- the piano teacher in town that my sister was taken from that, you know, the, you know, everybody took from her in town. Uh, said, well, I don't take anybody until they're six. So I start. I started with, her name was Mrs. Poole. <laughs> I started lessons with Mrs. Poole when I was six. And, um, you know, turns out she really wasn't that great of a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but I took lessons from her um, all through grade school. So from basically first, first grade all through eighth, like through to eighth grade, I think. Yeah. Well, and, um, why, why wasn't she? Why did? Why are you saying this now, looking back, or why do you think yeah. she wasn't a good teacher? Well, because um, you know, it's so. Let's see. When I was in, when I was in sixth grade, so I grew up. Uh, I grew up Catholic, so I went to a Catholic grade school. I went to a Catholic high school as well. But um, so every Friday, uh, the school, my grade school, would go to church, there would be the Catholic mass and the whole school. So kindergarten through eighth grade would all, you know, we'd go to mass together. And the, the music teacher guy 
um, I can't remember. He had to have throat throat surgery, so okay. he used to play the piano during the, you know, there's like there's music in the in the mass. Anyway, he was like, hey, you know, and he I played piano, and he's like, Kurt, I need you to play piano because I'm gonna have to have throat surgery, and so can you cover for me? And I was <laughs> like, oh my gosh, like uh, I don't know, like so I could read music because I had, you know, when I started taking piano lessons, it was all classical, so I could. Anyway, my point is. I remember there was like I had to play piano with like <laughs> the nun who was playing acoustic guitar and she she gave me the music but it wasn't all it was was a lead sheet so it was the chords with for anybody that's not a musician it was like the chord the chords were written out and then the melody which is what the people would sing so I was kind of like um man D, D7 like what well, I <laughs> I mean, I know I can read D on the page, but I don't know the D7 chord. Like, what are the notes in that chord? Because I didn't know. She had never taught me any music theory. Right. So that was my, that was like my wake-up call. Like, oh my gosh, like, I've been reading notes my whole life, but I don't even, if you told me how to play, you know, play a G13, I'd be like, I have no idea. Right. So I I told my mom, like, hey, I want to, like, I need to, I need to learn theory. So my mom asked Mrs. Poole, you know, can you start to teach Kurt? Um, music theory as well. And she was like, well, <laughs> I don't like to teach music theory because a lot of, you know, they, people teach it. There's a lot of different ways that people teach it. So, you know, I was like, really? I just think, I, I'm not sure she actually knew music theory. So I feel yeah. like she gave me the brush off. So then what happened was <laughs> um, I actually quit taking from her like some at some point in my eighth grade year. And then that's, Eventually, like that summer or very shortly after, I went and studied music theory with this nun at this other Catholic college in my hometown. And that was like way over my head. I mean, she was like giving me stuff that was just, it was like second year college music theory. And I'm like 13 and she's like telling me about secondary dominance and all this stuff. And it was, it was like, you know, drinking from the fire hose, but, um, you know, I, I know I'm getting off track a little bit. No, but, but I, I was even thinking, though, like, during this time, were you even, like, what was it doing for you? Like, was, why was there such an interest in it? Was it, do you have any I, idea? It, I just think I had this innate ability. I don't want to say, like, you know, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I feel confident about my skills, but I just... You know, some people just pick up the football and they can throw it like 50 yards. And then I try to throw it. I'm like, ah, yeah, I throw it as hard as I can. It only goes 20 yards. And some guys just have it, you know. And like for me, it just clicked. Hmm. And and I loved it. And, I, you know, I was just enamored by the radio and the sounds that I was hearing on the radio. You know, like, I mean, I know I'm dating myself, but just like the Phil Collins records and stuff, like in the air tonight, all that stuff, you know, Power Station. Yeah. Um, you know, the stuff, Tears for Fears, like, oh my gosh, I was just like, I want to make, you know, I want to do music and I want to be like, at the time, I, my dream was like, I thought, well, when I, when I grow up, I'm going to be a touring, I'm going to be a touring guy, yeah. you know. Um, but I, I had this fascination with just sound. Hmm. Um, you know, the classical thing was just like, if you took piano lessons, that's what you were going to do. You like, you know, I didn't even think to be like, well, why don't I study jazz piano or, you know, why, why don't I, it's just, it's just what we did. So, um, you know, but 
I, I, I loved the radio. I loved the, I, I always loved pop radio, you know, just top 40. I was, a, I just couldn't get enough of it. So my dad bought me my first synthesizer when I was in eighth grade. Hmm. And, hmm. but that's, I, what's, that's, what's interesting to me. And I remember, and, you know, expand upon this. Like I remember having the piano at home and I loved Head Over Heels from Tears for Fears. And I could hear it in my in my head and I could play it on my piano, but it didn't sound like theirs because they, I think they were using a keyboard or maybe it was another song. But I, I, I remember knowing that it was a piano of some sort, but it, it wasn't a piano. And so I get the sense you probably... You know, you're playing the piano, but then what made you go, or your dad just got you the keyboard? Because that sort of made me curious about, wait, I'm playing this thing, but it's not sounding like that. How do they do that? So that's when I sort of started thinking about keyboards and other sounds. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so I had, I was able to kind of play by ear, you know, even in grade school, I I would, I remember, <laughs> I remember, you know, my dad had a turntable, and so I would start to buy records. And you know, so I got I got my synth, but then I also had like this PV keyboard amp that had a you know it had a horn and a big fifteen inch thing. Mm -hmm. I would drop a mic behind the piano, so I'd mic up my acoustic piano at home, and then I would put a record on on our stereo. And we had pretty nice speakers, so I crank it up, and I was playing along, and I had learned the whole Survivor album. <laughs> So I was just jamming along. My dad would be sitting in the living room. He was super loud, but he, you know, he just, he loved it. And I mean, just like you though, I was like, the piano was like, okay, the piano's great, you know, but it's like, it's one sound. Like, yeah. listen to what's on this record. Or the, like, you know, the Asia record that was out. I don't remember the, um, Only Time Will Tell was the huge hit. Yeah. You know, the opening. Oh, it's like that sound, you know. And then just, just the use of synths you know, of, of keyboards in the pop setting. I was just like totally hooked. So then my dad bought me the synth and that's when I answered an ad in my local paper for some, you know, like a cover band was looking for a keyboard player. And I was like, dad, I want to, I want to go audition. So I'm literally 13 years old. I might've just turned, I might've just turned 14, but it was the summer after eighth grade. I show up, I have my Korg Poly 800, which was the first synth I had and my little PV amp and I show up to this lady's house, and everybody's in their 40s. <laughs> and I'm this little kid, and I'm like, hey, I'm here for, you know, I want to audi audition. So I got the job. Wow. I got the gig, and I started gigging that summer. And we gigged all, all summer. And there was like, you know, these, these were just like local bars in my area near my hometown and like the adjacent towns. But I remember there was this one, it was a restaurant that had a bar. It was like a steakhouse, but then they had this bar that was connected. And they booked bands six nights a week. And to my parents' credit, I would play Monday night through Saturday night from like nine until one, something like that. I remember we had like four or five sets. I had to learn like 60 songs. This is part of the other thing, you know, like playing by, playing by ear and then having the synth. I was even then starting to dial in as best I could I was like programming patches for the Madonna song that we were playing and the REO Speedwagon and what you know whatever um, to try to match and play the parts just like yeah. the record. So that I mean I look back on it and those 
you know, that summer of gigging with that band, my mom would go Monday night, you know, and she'd be out late. And then my dad would go Tuesday night and they would just trade off because, hey, I had to go with me, obviously. But, um, yeah, it's like, you know, years later, I was, you know, maybe 10, 10 years ago or so. There was a stretch of maybe four or five years where I was part of a basically like a corporate band that was hired to play for Microsoft's worldwide conference where it was oh, wow. in this, it was in the arena and all literally everyone from all over the world so all the german microsoft employees would be sitting in this section and japan was over there you know and australia and canada and they all had on warm ups it was like the olympics you know cuz they were all and they were waving their flags and stuff so we we were playing you know whatever was the current top 40 at the time and then you know fat, you know but obviously but i even then it was like I would be programming patches. Wow. Like everybody in the band were total pros and they had toured with big artists and like everyone was super dialed in and all of our tones, you know, we were trying to get these, our performances and sounds so close to the record. But my point is just that that had started for me when I was 13, that I was already like listening to, you know, what that synth, what is it? And how, you know, how can I, then the Poly 800, the Poly 800 was such a limited, yeah. you know, synth looking back on it i remember thinking man it's it kind of felt like whatever i did it always sounded the same or had this sameness to it and you know now looking back on it, i was like oh, i understand why because the architecture is pretty simple but yeah but that passion had started then so um well that's it's really just, it's really cool that your parents were really like all in they they didn't hold you back in any way no they didn't i mean i was you that's know cool. looking back on it i was in some environments that probably shouldn't have been in you know, at that young of an age, but, um, but they did, they were completely supportive. Um, and I basically played keys from the time I was, you know, 13 or 14, um, all through college, you know, for money yeah. and, um, and, and for fun, you know, performing was a, a big part of, of my teenage years and my early twenties. And I really did think that I was going to be a touring guy. And I did get to go out on the road with actually a country artist in 2008. Um, and it was just really interesting. I got to finally do like sort of what I wanted to do. And we were on a really nice bus. And I mean, she was a new artist. So, you know, at these festivals where whoever the big artist was headlining, you know, we would play on the stage at like 6 p.m., you know, for 30 minutes. Right. And then the headliner plays at 10 or 11. But I realized like, okay, I'm almost on this bus for three days, you know, to like to bus out, you know, so say the gig's Friday night. Well, we leave Thursday night at midnight because they don't want to pay the bus driver. If you leave on Thursday, they have to pay him for that day. So that's how it works. You, okay. you get on the bus at midnight. So at the time, my son was two years old and I'm just like sleep deprived and trying to stay up until midnight to drive down to the bus you know, and everybody's like, hey, let's watch a movie. Let's hang out. And I'm like, I got to go to bed, you know, yeah. I'm so tired. And then they're all, you know, I was, I think I was the only one that had a child at that time. So, you know, I'm waking up early and they're all sleeping until 10 or whatever. But, but my point is, um, while I loved playing even just that half hour and it was a great band and I had such a blast with everybody, um, there were times where I couldn't wait to get off the bus because they'd get a hotel room for us sometimes like during the day. You know, if we got into town in the afternoon, you could go up to the hotel room for a few hours. Well, I'd take, I would take my laptop and my, and my keyboard, my hard drives 
and I'd be working on my headphones and working on production. And my wife and I were, were releasing electronic music at the time. And I couldn't, like, that was so much more edifying than I'm gone for three days supporting this artist. And I loved her. She was great, you know. But I, at the yeah. end of the day, I was like, wow, okay. Um, plus, just, you know, monetarily, there's a ceiling to being a sideman musician, you know, side guy. Yeah. Uh, and you're versus like creating something that you can potentially own. It's like building assets versus just, you know, work for hire. Was there a moment, because it feels like you sort of naturally were making money, just going on the road and got gigs. Uh, like, I, I guess a lot of people are thinking to themselves, you know, I want to do this for a living. But it, it feels like in your teens, you, you know, you were, you were just kind of doing it. It sort of was this natural progression. But I'm starting to think, feels like, you know, was the intention in college to be that touring musician and then you kind of realized in your 20s, and I don't know if it's because of your family or your son, but then you were, you were thinking, I need to do something else to make a living, but I still wanted to be in music. I mean, you know, how did that conversation go in your head or were you, were you thinking, get, let's get out, I can't do touring, this is insane. You know, what, what was going on? A couple of things. I mean, so I studied classical piano as an undergraduate. So around the time I was a junior, like nearing the mid to end of my junior year, I remember thinking, all right, I'm gonna graduate with a piano degree. Like, and I didn't, you know, I didn't really, my intention wasn't to be a piano teacher. Right. Um, which it would have allowed me to do. Um, and I was studying classical piano in college still, but like playing in the cover band on the weekends. Um, so that's when I started to look for grad school and to see what was out there because I felt like I'm going to need some real world, like, you know, education other than like teaching and playing classical piano. Right. <laughs> so that's when I found Miami and the program was, I mean, I, I couldn't even believe that something like this existed at the time. Berkeley didn't have any grad programs. They were only undergrad, un, only undergraduate. Now, Berkeley would have been great. Um, and I remember looking at Berkeley, you know, when I was in high school, but I, it seemed too far away. Uh, so, I, you know, where I went to college in Illinois was like a couple hours from my hometown. So that worked out. But anyway, I found the program in Miami, which was a mix of sort of, uh, well, it was called media writing and production. But um, you studied, we studied orchestration. We studied music production in the studio, which meant microphones and, and console, you know, signal flow and just that side of it. We studied film scoring. We studied jazz arranging. Um, like I had to write an original piece and, and, and orchestrate it for full orchestra. Um, you know, I had a couple of like big band arranging classes, which were really, for me, really hard because I didn't come from a big jazz or background. So you know, the guys that had grown up playing jazz and 
they already knew the voicings and there's you know there's like all these rules that when you have five saxophones and it's a C minor 7 there's rules for which guy gets which notes you know and then if the line goes ba na na and they all go da 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 together there's like it, it's it's really you know pretty intricate so yeah. anyway the program exposed me to a lot of different um you know things in music and it really kind of prepared me to I mean, there's, I, I mean, I don't want this to sound cocky, but I mean, the program prepares you to almost do anything. Yeah. If you got yeah. hired to do an arrangement for an orchestra or a small combo, like I could do it. You know, if I had to score something to to picture, I could do it. Um, so that, um, I think that sort of, well, it was. Uh, there was a lot of composition, you know, involved. So I think that kind of wet my appetite for that the that part of my creative brain you know i moved back to chicago after grad school and i actually got hired as a composer at a game company so i was making like music for the for at the time like pinball and slot machines and and um like arcade games this was this it was three companies in one uh it was called williams valley midway in chicago but i still had the dream of of touring even though i was like doing the composition thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, then I moved to Nashville and started, like, producing song demos. And, um, you know, I did some writing, like, really cheap. There was a client here in town that that um, produced jingles for, like, local businesses all over the country. They would go out and get the work, and then, you know, I'd do the jingles. My wife would my wife would write write them mostly, and then I would produce them uh and record you know whatever but um i was like in my mid-30s i think when i got to do the touring thing and um yeah by then i was already hooked on the the writing and the production yeah. and i you know the touring thing felt like well unless i'm you know it's not it wasn't just a money thing but but there was a realization that unless you're playing with the top artists and they put you on salary that you're just a you're just a side guy and there's a ceiling like you know in nashville playing with a new artist you know back then it was the pay was like maybe 250 a show per guy which right. you know that's not a lot of money to be gone for almost three days or two and a half no. days you got to play a boatload of shows a year to make that into a decent living do you think it's harder now more than ever like i think about because you, you're talking about money, and and I think you know, it's it's. I think it's just it's. I think society has a hard time placing a value, a monetary value on art, and I, a lot of people out there might you know think two hundred fifty dollars to play the guitar, or the bass, or the keyboard for half an hour. What you know that, but but then you you think about like you know, bills and responsibilities and, and it's, it's so complicated because everybody has their own story with money and, and success. But I don't know. I, I, I wonder if it's harder now for artists to make a living. And then I also think about, I think it's important to live in a society where artists can make a living through their art. And it feels like the culture is stripping that possibility away. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like yes and no. Not to yeah. 
play both sides, but I think because I've seen it, um, I mean, is it harder? Yeah, most likely. I, you know, I think it is. Um, especially with the collapse of, you know, the record business essentially starting in, you know, the year 2000 or whenever Napster came on, you know, that was the beginning of the end in terms of being able to sell and monetize music, you know. Um, so when, when, but I mean, things are, you know, kind of coming back up with the streaming side of things, but that's another issue. But I think, you know, the money's moved. There's independent people here in town uh, that make an incredible living hmm. and don't ever have to leave their house, you know, because it's the buffet of income, like I'm saying. And these are, these are people that have really poured into their YouTube channels and their, you know, their streaming numbers hmm. and they're building their fan base and um, through the vehicle of film and TV sync, you know, getting a good sync can absolutely change the landscape of your numbers, which will then put that's money in your pocket, you know, yeah. now. And if you keep releasing things, then, you know, put out your audio only on YouTube with just a graphic. And, you know, now you've got X amount of followers and this song now has, you know, five million plays on YouTube and it's got 10 million or, you know, 50 million plays on Spotify. And you're, you know, it's like, that's money. Like, I mean, we can all, you know, cry how poorly, you know, streaming pays and it's not great, you know, and it's very lops it's very lopsided, not to get too like music businessy, but I mean the difference between what, what you would make on the master side of things versus the publishing, uh, you know, is not even remotely the same. Uh so if do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um but as an independent, you know, these people own their masters and um so they're 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 killing it. I mean, you know, that's that's like the plus side of where things are right now. If you want to, you know, do that and take the time to build your your subscribers, the amount of you know shazamming that happens is is crazy. I mean, hmm. I was just I had a meeting the other day, and I have I have a song that I co-wrote and co-produced that or produced that was in some reality show. And he was telling me, because he manages the girl that I co-wrote it with, he's like, man, dude, he's like, the Shazam's off that song from that episode are like, you know, I mean, it's not like insane, but he's like, they're really, they're, it really spiked. And he's like, you know, it, the little, you know, it's not always about the money. It's like, okay, so the placement didn't pay much, but look at all the new eyeballs and new fans that you're you're making. So, um you know, as you have more success in this film and TV, you know, it just helps build your fan base and then it just snowballs. And then yeah. anything you release, you're going to, you're guaranteed to have millions of streams because you've just, you've got this momentum behind you if you have enough eyeballs on it. Last question. Uh, I'm thinking two things, but we'll, we'll see. But like, what are your favorite keyboards that you, that you are using right now or, or what's... Uh... Oh, favorite keyboards? Yeah. <laughs> now you're talking my language. <laughs> Um, well, I know you can't see it, but I bought a Korg Monopoly. Okay. Maybe, uh, maybe two years ago. So for anybody that doesn't know, it, it was out in 1982. It's fully analog. It 
um, you know, no presets. It's just the sound you have is where the knobs are. And uh, anyway, without totally nerding out, um, <laughs> it's, uh, I love it. I cannot believe the amount of creativity that it inspired in me initially. I mean, it still does, but like when I got it, I didn't have anything else that did what that did. And I mean, I, those are the kinds of things I can count on one hand, how many things I've bought that have over the years that have, that have done that. And, and so that was one. Um, and, uh, probably I don't use it as much, but I have the Moog, the sub, the sub fatty or the subsequent 37. I'm looking at it. It's over here. That thing is, really versatile and i actually use it a lot for kind of like sound designy kind of things where even in like really aggressive tracks i'll just drown it in reverb and be you know messing with the filters and and morphing sounds and it becomes this wash of like it's really ominous thing and it's you know most people think oh i'm going to use the moog for the bass sound and i mean it, it does that great too but i find it such an inspiring instrument when you're kind of like in real time just living and breathing with it you know that's that's the thing about you know real keyboards or real hardware that just you know plugins don't don't it's not the same experience yeah. and there are a lot of great sounding plugins but yeah i think about that too like i have some uh arteria has yeah. a couple great soft synths that i i love i think pigment is one of them um but there is it is a different experience when you're actually holding on to the hardware and it, but again it goes back to that point that we've talked about like does anybody even notice or care and probably not but i think as an artist uh the experience with the actual keyboard does feel a little bit more um full-bodied and and three-dimensional 100 percent agree yeah. yeah it's more organic it's more fun and <laughs> yeah. the more fun that we can inject into the creative process the better you know the better the end product will be. Yeah. I mean, could I could I accomplish the same thing using Serum? Probably, but I'd be mouse clicking myself to death. You know, it's <laughs> like it's just so rewarding. You know, just like picking up an acoustic guitar and you know playing that, and just it's resonating in your hands. You know, it's it. And there's nothing else like it. So yeah, um, I'm I'm fortunate to have you know if my 13 year old self if you told me hey you're gonna have You'll have the Juno 60 and the Korg, the Korg and the Moog and you know another the JX8P and some other things and I've been like no way. <laughs> so yeah. I, I'm I'm blessed that you know I'm really happy with. I mean, there's always more. You know, I love that the Prophet. The um, that'd be something else I wouldn't mind having the Prophet 10. Yeah, that's great. I, I it's very expensive, but I, I keep eyeballing it for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a good one. How, uh, how old is you? Do you have two kids or one? Just one. And how old is, uh, I think, boy, right? Yeah, his name's Lennox. How old is Lennox? He just turned 16. Is he, like, really into the music? You could tell he's going to be doing that for a long time, or? No, actually, well, he, he um, he's incredibly intelligent. And he's, actually, he's not going to do music. Oh, okay. Um, He'll end up being an engineer, like a probably a mechanical engineer. Uh, the music's just for fun, but his brain, I mean, you know, there's a lot of like pretty 
intricate routing that can be done on the Moog, a subsequent 37, and on the Korg, on the Monopoly. And he 100% understands how to use these synthesizers. Mm -hmm. And he gets these crazy routings going and modulation. You know, I'm using the LFO to modulate the, the, you know, the envelope, and then that's doing, you know, whatever, like, We'll just come over here at night, at night sometimes, and he'll just experiment with the you know, with with the synths, and it's cool to see because he's not, um, you know, I came up studying music, playing piano, and and that's not been his background, so it's almost like he approaches it. It's just it's a completely different approach because he's not thinking about it musically. He's almost thinking about it from an engineer's point of stand, you know, standpoint, just in the routings and all that. But yeah, yeah. Um, but it is fun yeah, to see. I, I mean, he's definitely got, he's got the music thing. He's just, it's just different. Like he's not, he doesn't play an instrument, but he makes crazy music on his iPad. I've shown him some stuff about mixing, but yeah, like he's just, he's brilliant. So he's, that's cool. It's really neat to see. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Kurt, man, this was wonderful. And I, I had a sense that it would be cool to, talk about music i think it, it's just for me right now i think uh i'm sort of on hiatus creatively just some of my projects are done and i'm sort of like curious what i'm going to do next so it's just nice to have these discussions and and talk art and music and the crazy world of, of tech and and how that influences everything so yeah it was great to see you and talk yeah this is fun yeah. Do more <laughs> yeah, I know. That's 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 what my last guest said too. I just it's weird. She said she had the, she's like I don't I don't talk about this kind of stuff very often ever. So it's just it's nice to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, man. Well, well uh, of course. Yeah, it was great to see you. Are you going to go to any of the Durango stuff? Any or that's just done? Or you're? I mean, maybe at some point. Yeah. The, tra the traveling thing has been so off the right off the table. Yeah. Um, I mean, eventually, you know, eventually I'd love to, to get back out and meet, you know, meet some people. Sure. I mean, that, it's funny. I mean, there's, I met a lot of people. I think the year I met you there was my first year. Mm. Um, but I mean, I still know a lot of those folks that are yeah. here in town that were there that year, you know, cool. that I would have ne never met if I hadn't gone. But yeah. You stay in touch with any, any of them or? Yeah, a few of them. Um, yeah. Have you gone to any more? I feel like I've been to three, but I don't remember if the one that uh, I definitely went to three. But I I don't remember if the one that I saw you at was the last one I went to. I'm not sure. I mean, that was like 2014, maybe. I know it was. Yeah, but I've I've started to feel like you know maybe I should go back again because they just had one out here like a couple weeks ago, and I was. Uh, but yeah, so I I feel like maybe next year I'll I'll return yeah. and, and see. Um, well, cool, man. Well, have a great rest of your day. This will probably post in like a week or two, but I'll certainly let you know. And it was it was great to see you and great to talk. Yeah, for sure. I enjoyed it. Cool, man. I'll see you soon. Right. Yeah. Have a see good you. day. Bye. Thank you.